Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we're with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and I'm Matt Till. Hey, guys, great to be with you again today. Man, it's so good to see your all's faces. I mean, it always is. I like looking at you guys, handsome gentlemen. <laughs> Some of us, at least. <laughs> Cheery-eyed this morning, ready for it, back in it, a new season of the Ephesiology Podcast. And uh, there's never a shortage of things for us to be discussing and talking through and wrestling through uh, as it comes to uh, life on mission and uh, living these uh, crazy ways of Jesus. Mm, yeah. yeah I'm, I mean, you sometimes you sit back and think, gosh, you can't make these things up that we see going on in culture today. And um, yeah, so... We, well, I think uh, the sad I think the sad thing is, is that some people actually do believe that people are making these things up. But the reality is, is that they're true. They're actually happening and that there are more controversies that continue to hit the news every single day when it comes to our faith and and the uh, the leaders that we have upheld in this. Uh, and so these are some of the things that cause us to wrestle and for us to to continue to go back to our scriptures and say, okay, well, what do we believe and and where are we at with these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, exactly. And it's leaders of all sorts these days are uh, our, our moral spiritual leaders as well as our political leaders and and so on it's just a, a really mixed up time it seems like and at least in the North American context yeah that's right that's right well hey well, let's get into our topic for today and um, I have a uh, bit of a provocative question to ask and that is are we watching the slow um death blow, um, and maybe it's a series of death by a million cuts to evangelicalism. Is this, is this the times in which we're living in? Are we finally, is, is evangelicalism dying? Is it on its way out? Is it literally taking a death by a million cuts at this moment? Is this, is this the times we're living in? What do you guys think? I think, well, I think it's funny when you ask that because part of the, uh, like, if you want to reframe the question, uh, you might say, is this the beginning of the end? But a whole host of people have been decrying the end of evangelicalism for a really long time. And so I think exactly as you're saying, the death by a thousand cuts or a million cuts, it's been happening for a while, but it's getting to the point where it's becoming a little bit more obvious or, or rather you can't avoid talking about this. So uh, lazily, I will say yes. I think so, uh, but I'll pitch it to Michael for his thoughts, and uh, as we'll be talking around this today. But I, I do think so, Matt. I am affirming your thought. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tremendously complex situation, and again, I'm emphasizing in the North American context um, it, because evangelicalism has it long had some associations that don't actually look like evangelicalism in other places. And, uh, and like Andrew said, I, I mean, I can remember, and you, you, you guys remember Professor Cliff Williams 
I mean, he and I would joke around in the hallways of the faculty offices at Trinity and say, you know, where where do we send our resignation letter? We want to resign from evangelicalism. And this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so we've been talking about this issue of what is evangelicalism? Um, is it worth saving? Uh, is it dying? Uh, I mean, this is if, in fact, we've been talking about it for at least two decades, maybe even longer than that. Uh, is this indeed a slow, a, a, an incredibly slow death of of evangelicalism? But the the bigger question, I suppose, in my mind, is what's next? What what is coming after? whatever it is that's happening to this thing that we're calling evangelicalism. And so we're going to spend several weeks, I suspect, on talking about after evangelicalism what, and trying to wrap our heads around the, the, you know, some of the issues that we're confronting in contemporary culture and, uh, and try to be honest in our wrestling with these things. Because there comes a point where, and, and we mentioned this last week in our podcast, that you know we could just simply tear down evangelicalism like everybody else has done. And I just find nothing constructive about that. And so we need to get to the point to say, okay, here's the issue. Here are our frustrations uh, that let's ask Andrew's famous question, so what? Uh, what's coming next after this? So and so that's where we want to spend uh, the, the bulk of our attention over the next several weeks. Okay, so if we do that, which we should, um, I don't think I've trademarked the question. So what? But maybe I should get around to that. Um, man, the royalties on that one would be great. There you um, go. So if I've learned anything uh, from kind of what's been happening in the last few years, something that I have learned uh, when watching culture is it is disingenuous to run forward and say, um, let's make a new plan or let's move on to something new without actually dealing with what's rotten in the past, without mm -hmm. actually calling uh, through history as well as even the present to say, this cannot remain so I, I'm, I'm hesitant for us just to jump forward and say, well, it's got some issues. Now let's move forward. Let's, let's prognosticate about what's next. I think we do need to spend some moments today and say, well, what's wrong, right? Like, and I, again, I, Michael, I appreciate, I don't want us just to be uh, standing behind a safe spot, just lobbing bombs saying, this stinks, this sucks, this is bad. Uh, isn't this just awful? And all we're doing on this podcast is stirring the pot. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we cannot healthily move forward unless we point to something and say, this is rotten. This is really, really bad. And yet we keep trying to build on this rotten aspect of a foundation. And so uh, if I can ask between the two of you and, and uh, while you're talking, I'll keep thinking, what do you think are some of the major issues that we are seeing today, the big red flags that make us say, yes, evangelicalism is falling, and it's because of this rotten piece? What would you say are some of those critical things you're seeing? 
Yeah, I mean that's the, the, I mean that's a perfect question, Andrew. And those are dealing with the things that are are frustrating us. And the challenge in all of this too, and then we'll dive into what we think are some of those frustrating things, is that we don't always want to be reactive because uh, developing a theology out of a reaction uh, can lead to wonky theology, and we've seen that uh, happen. Uh, historically, even in even presently, we see that happening at some level. And so, while we want to uh, express the issues, uh, perhaps even our frustrations, when we begin to think about answering the question, "Well, after evangelicalism, what?" Then we want to be able to rest in a sense of calm and peace and understanding, particularly in the sovereignty of God, because the things that are happening in our society today that are particularly frustrating for us as evangelicals or as ex-evangelicals or whatever it is we would call ourselves um, are real things, but they don't take God by surprise. And uh, and so keeping holding all of those things together, uh, they, I think, gives us a, a good perspective in terms of where we are hoping uh, we want to land as we address this question after evangelicalism, what? So, Andrew, your your question, what are the issues? What are the things that are frustrating us? Matt? (laughs) Well, you know, this conversation is helpful because, you know, one of the things is we don't want to just be doing here is just simply deconstructing, right? As you already mentioned, um, Andrew, but part of that is part of the process is uncovering, you know, when there's a disaster, we have to figure out, we got to get down to the source. How did this happen? Where, where did this come from? I'm thinking about the tragic collapse of that condominium in South Florida, in Miami um, earlier this year, and the disaster that that created. It's one thing for us to say, oh, freak accident, bad design, whatever it was, and to move on. That's not helpful posture. There is something like that is a tragedy. And if we don't spend the time to examine and to look at it and to verify that is this in fact a one-off random happenstance, somebody made a bad decision back in when the place was built in 1979, that that's what led to it today, then okay, we can dismiss it, right? Um, but if this is systemic, if this is part of the, the the building code issues, if this is something that's occurring in other places, it must be addressed for the sake of humanity and for the sake of the world and for those who, who live in the area and for those who live in, in places like this. We have for so long been looking at churches and we point to these leaders who we've put up on pedestals and then fall and collapse like, you know what, moral failure, darn it, man, that was just a hard to see that one go, but dang it, you know, just, you know, we all sin, we all fall. And that was there. That's not us. That doesn't represent us, but we have enough evidence. Now we have enough stories to share and we have plenty of a, there is a breadcrumb trail. (laughs) I mean, if you were to take this into the court of law and look at all the other things, you can see that within evangelicalism, there's a systemic issues. There are systemic issues that are plaguing us today as a culture and plaguing us today as a movement. And so for that, we must, we must, we must go through the process of uncovering it all. Where's the evidence? Find it. And then let's root it out. So with mm-hmm. that, I think two things that come to mind to, to answer your question, Andrew, um, 
about what is it is really, I'm just going to use two big headings because it would be easy for us to talk about some of the specifics, but we, we always want to move beyond that. So we want to get down to the theology. We want to get down to the, to the bigger issues. So two things that we're always hampering on is one, um, our missiology, our missiology is broken and that, always, that needs uh, a rethought and rethinking. And then number two, our ecclesiology. Um, what do we believe about the church and, and how the church functions and versus how it functions today? And perhaps what are the lessons we should be learning from the past to in order to import into the present? So those are the two big headings that I thought of. Um, what, what else would be on your list or do you want to drill down into any, any one of those? Yeah, I mean, those are those are I would agree, Matt. Those are the big headings. What is our missiology and and uh, what is our ecclesiology? I think when we address those things, of course, we get to the issue of our theology and uh, we get to other issues as well, because, you know, these things in a very real sense can't be. Uh, uh, islands unto themselves. There's an interconnectedness to our missiology, theology, ecclesiology, all of these ologies that we love to talk about. They're interconnected. And they, and wherever we land on those things, they tend to put us on a trajectory that that uh, can be anticipated in, in terms of uh, what the outcome of our thinking is on those issues, or or not just even our thinking, but what's the outcome of um, our actions as we begin to enact these things. And of course, we, uh, it, it, we're, we're seeing this just kind of manifest in just a, a gazillion ways in society now. And so if we were to think, for example, uh, the, of our ecclesiology and and where we're seeing that we perhaps have gotten a little bit sideways is certainly what you brought up, Matt. I mean, we're seeing uh, moral failures of key leaders, um, and not just moral failures of uh, key leaders, but but uh, just leadership failure um, uh, of different people that we've held high and uh, and. You know that's caused many people to rethink uh, the structure of the church, the leadership of the church. Uh, people are are talking about uh, this new idea, although I mean it's expressed in a new term of polycentric leadership. Um, I don't know that that uh, Paul would have thought in that particular. Uh, category, although the, the things that I think that we see him do certainly hold that polycentric idea of a plurality and equality of, of leadership. Uh, others are talking about uh, Trinitarian models um, th- that we need to focus on in, in regards to our understanding that there's a, a, a co-equality, a, a co-authority um, that should be expressed in in leadership that would help to to correct the things that that we see happening in uh, in churches. Um, so yeah, so in terms of ecclesiology, certainly uh, leadership is critical um, in in uh, that whole conversation. And again, we see these moral failures uh, and other spiritual failures increasingly more frequent than uh, we have in uh, the decades past. You know, and this like you, is, 
Go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to jump in just because I find it funny. We all sound like we're really uh, well. We're talking in ivory towers a little bit. But when, once you start jumping to the ologies, uh, we all agree. We kind of know what we're talking about. But Michael, I, I think what you're starting to talk about are are the branches that are coming down from those ologies. Uh, the the differing ecclesiology, the <laughs> inferior missiology that we all hold, uh, that all stems from bad theology. Uh, all the ologies are great things to talk about, but it's the how does this carry out in the day to day, and how is it leading? How is that actually leading to the rottenness that we're seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what matters, I think, to the. I don't want to say the normal person as if we aren't normal people, please understand we're three fools talking on a mic. Like I promise we are still normal. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think we are actually, I just called myself normal and I don't, I don't think anybody's really called me normal. So, uh, but, but the reality is then if these are the broken ologies, if there are broken things, what are the branches that are impacting people? And I think you've touched on a very, very big one, Michael, is that that centrality of leadership, that through that ecclesiology, that the best way to lead a church is that central single figure. Mm-hmm. And um, as my buddy Nate has said, I mean, it's been said lots of places, but Nate has said it recently, you know, sometimes at this point, we're going to look at this and say, this is actually a feature, not a bug. This is this problem that we keep seeing over and over and over and over is not each church being like, oh, this is a one-off. Oh, this is a one-off. Oh, this is a one-off. But instead, it almost feels like this has been the poor construction of our ecclesiology with the focus mm-hmm. on that single leadership figure. That's one of the things that, yeah, it actually has been built into this. We have continued to try to build evangelicalism with that central figure. Matt, you look like you're about to try to come off the top rope, so... Yeah, I I just want to push back a little bit. Only, but I don't I don't disagree with anything you're saying. But but here I'm going to go back to my the, the analogy I used earlier about um, just using the, as a, the tragic example of what happened in Miami with the condo collapse. The reason why I brought up theologies and the list goes on. And Michael, you rightfully said theology. We got to think about that. Um, what that impacts our eschatology. Mm. We should also be rethinking epistemology. Do we understand knowledge and knowing? And where does all this come from? And the reason why I keep going there is because we don't beg to ask, you know, if we look at the condo and we say, what went wrong here? How do we do it better? Okay, great. But nobody bothers to ask the question, should we be building condos of this size anywhere near the ocean? Right. It's it's not asking the deeper question. It's right. just going that surface level, yeah. one down. Right. We got that. Let's move on. Yeah. And so, but nobody bothers to ask the bigger question. Are we even, did, should we even be building these things? So that's why well, I'm saying like we're we're concerned about asking those questions, aren't we? If we're, if we're honest, because we're so that's my point. That and then that's and that's where this conversation I think is so important for us today is because or, it's or, it's fearful. We're we're afraid. Yeah. That's a big question to ask. those are big questions to ask. Yeah. Or if if there are those of us who are bold enough to ask those questions, um, there's a real concern for rejection and. Uh, being marginalized. You know, I've been, one of the research projects that I'm working on right now uh, is the practices of the ancient church. And that that's, it's funny, but it's driven me 
way back before the ancient church, looking at some of the patterns in society that helped to inform structures in in the ancient church. And uh, while I was doing that, I was reminded of of our buddy Socrates that we like to talk about. And uh, he's so great. Can we settle this now? Is it Socrates or Socrates? Somebody, please, somebody solve this. If Bill and Ted say it one way, I believe them. There you go. That's Andrew right. and that is a- on the internet. Uh, so, so our buddy Socrates, you know, the reason why he was uh, ultimately uh, condemned to death was for two things. One is he asked way too many questions. So he was challenging authority. And then secondly, ah, he was crap. influencing young people. And uh, and sometimes I'm sure there are some of us that feel like, boy, we just have so many questions um, that it's causing disruption among those, you know, so-called authorities and uh, frustration on their part, because for one, they don't know how to answer the questions. They're honest questions, and they're more than likely the right questions that need to be asked. And I don't think anybody's asking them just simply to, you know, shove a knife in somebody and twist it, but there's an honest searching that's going on and a, an honest desire to have dialogue. And that's what Socrates was about, wasn't it? The Socratic method, this dialogical method. Let's have conversations and work these things out. Don't get all irritated and frustrated at the guy who's or the gal who's asking the question. Let's answer it honestly and do this together because there we we both, we all have something to benefit from this kind of exploration uh, of our questions and our challenges. And, uh, and, and so, yeah. So, I, I mean, I keep thinking about him, uh, and his demise, hoping that that's not going to be our demise as well. But, uh, you know, we, one of the things that we value and we keep saying over and over again on uh, this podcast and in our courses is that we want to do theology and community. And really the only way to do that is to be able to sit down and openly, honestly, without having a sense that um, I'm going to make somebody mad or that the that somebody's going to react in an angry manner toward me. But let's let's do this constructively. Uh, let's have a, a civil exchange, an honest exchange where we can uh, um, not feel threatened by someone else. And, and my concern, I, and I think we're seeing this certainly in social media, but in other places, that there is, there is a greater tendency for people to marginalize voices than there is to really listen and interact and engage and dialogue constructively, knowing that we all are on the same mission. Uh, that, that mission hasn't changed for 2,000 years. And if we can agree on that and uh, agree that we're motivated, animated by a love and passion for God and his glory, then, boy, I I just think we can make some great, uh, incredible progress uh, to see the gospel extend, uh, not only here, but around the world. I just wanted to jump in and say we probably shouldn't look towards social media and say, because this is happening on Twitter or on Facebook uh, then that's actually the mark of where things are because we all know going to social media is immediately a step towards insanity. 
Like it will frustrate you. You are going to hate what you see. It will drive you mad and you'll get off and you'll be like, why did I get on? So anyway, let's let's I just don't want to say the dialogical uh, method uh, is still valid. Just probably not there. Just probably not there. Anyway, Matt, I, I had to jump in to say that yeah. you had something wise yeah. and, well, wonderful. and speaking of social media. Yeah, thanks. But also speaking of social media, I did just jump back into I had deleted my Facebook account a while ago and um, I haven't returned, but I did just return back to Instagram for the first time this past week. So you can follow me at Matt till one Matt till one, if you're interested. And I've been actually under the same heading under, under the same uh, handle for Twitter. I never left Twitter. But yeah, social media cesspool. So um, the uh, what I was going to say is, um, you know, I, th- this seems like this. Um, if, we're, if we're going down this journey of, of of needing to rethink these things and and have these conversations, as you were saying, Michael, is to the same point. Like I, I've learned to embrace. Um, my agnostic and atheist friends. And this is something that was um, where I think part of the part of evangelicals demise is occurring is that it's been turning out to experience more cult-like behavior than it has actually openness that we claim because everything within evangelicalism in most circles, if you're considered evangelicalism has been more around ideological protection and so there's always, we have courses and things on apologetics. How do I defend this faith in a way that actually gets presented as, how do I just give these answers to somebody who claims that they have a different answer, but fails oftentimes in it's over, it's overly simplistic and it often fails to engage in the real issues. So we have a friend of ours that was recently over and, um, and he, I would, he's in the agnostic camp. Um, maybe almost like just a theist, probably closer to it, just a theist and a great individual love this man and his family so much, but the dialogues that we have are so open-handed and so Mm -hmm. open-ended. He listens to my podcast um, as well on a regular basis, things he listens to and hears and he agrees with other things he doesn't fully connect with, but it's challenging to me because I realize that real knowledge can exist outside of my immediate tribe and that there are things in which, yeah, mind blown. Right. And so that influences, then I have to wrestle through those core beliefs and those core understandings. Mm. But when we're going to sit here and just go reformation, that's the gold standard, nothing else for the next till Jesus returns moment. Well, then no wonder where we are. You know what I mean? No wonder our, our, our eschatology is whacked out. It's been like, it, we're like the, the, the church in, not in Ephesus, but we're the church in uh, Thessalonica. We're sitting in our hands, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus to return to make it all better again and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. And we're just like, well, we're saved and we're good. And we're just going to protect our own little camp right now. Get off your tush. <laughs> go engage the world. Go listen. Go go be part of the conversations. And maybe we didn't get everything right 500 years ago. And you're going to be waiting around another 500 years, by the way. Yeah. So I think I, sorry, I totally that's my agree. soapbox right now. 
No, no and that's a good, a good soapbox. soapbox. Yeah, absolutely. Um, go ahead, Andrew. And then I wanted to. I, yeah, I, I was only going to jump in earlier. I'm glad I waited. But exactly what you're saying, it seems that maybe since the Reformation and uh, the Enlightenment era, we as the church have come at our faith, not in a dialogue, but in an argument and mm-hmm. um, as a position to win. And so now as Christians, we have been living out this faith through, and I say, I'm not saying apologetics in a bad way. I, I'm not trying to down on apologetics, but the way that we are approaching it is I have a position and I need to defend it and win. And so why is it any surprise that large swaths of a certain political party make it their goal to quote unquote own the libs. Like that's what their biggest excitement is, is that they can try to find somebody who has an argument that they dislike or a way of life that they dislike. And then their goal is to quote unquote, put them in their place. And for those of us who are really not a big fan of just trying to run around and put people in their places, um, it's kind of like, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that this is the result? Because this is what we have been practicing, but we've been doing it in quote unquote, the name of Jesus. So it's made it all okay. Mm. It's made it all fine. And yet when we've teased it out and people have taken that idea and they've applied it to quote unquote, well, I should say outside the faith, we can have a conversation about, is there really a part of your life that is not under the Lordship of Jesus? But you know, Hey, that's a conversation for another day. But if you are going to say, I am now going to apply what I did in my Christian faith to my political beliefs, and we don't like it, it's not just because you went off and did something crazy politically. You might have been doing that crazy thing under the umbrella of Christianity as well. Well, and that's, and that's exactly how things like oppression and racism have been allowed to flourish um, under Christianity at times. And uh, has been protective is because we've been overly protective of certain beliefs and we've held on to those things. And we could say there were a few bad apples, but there's more than just a few bad apples. And uh, our, our, um, you know, our friends who are the atheists and agnostics love to point to the crusades um, and they're not wrong when they do, Um, you know, it was attempted genocide. So we have to own that. And we have to say what, what, what went wrong there and what, and, and how are we correcting that into the future? And we're still dealing with a lot of these similar residual issues even today. And it's mm. not necessarily amongst minority. It's embedded within us. It's embedded within our theology, unfortunately. So we have to we have to extricate that or we have to just own it and say, no, this is who we are. And then you as an individual have to decide, am I on board with that God or not? And th- those are the scary questions. These are the scary questions, but this is what the culture is forcing us to ask. And I think it's helpful for us because we're, the witness demands it. Yeah. Michael, what are you going to go on? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Matt. I think those are the questions to ask, and and we need to ask them honestly. And uh, and sometimes, you know what, we're going to get answers that are going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, the, particularly for those of us in the Protestant evangelical camp here, in quotation marks, uh, the, the whole Reformation thing that happened 500 years ago. Um, you know, when we ask those kinds of questions, they make us a little bit uncomfortable. And, and then when we begin to 
to honestly look at some of the things that came out of the Reformation um, and uh, and even evaluate those uh, vis-a-vis uh, the early church, you know, sometimes we're going to find that it, they fall short. And uh, we need to be able to admit that, uh, to not, you know, poo-poo it, because uh, as we know, theology develops in culture. And uh, sometimes that theology is adapted to culture in very constructive ways that will accelerate the spread of the gospel. Other times that theology becomes captive to culture and it becomes harmful uh, ultimately and results in the, not just the slowdown of the gospel, but the decline of the church in general. And that certainly seems to be one of the things that we're seeing in the North American context today that, that in many ways that we've become captive to our culture and um, and you know we're hardly indistinguishable from what we see going on around the world uh, around the, our world today. So Matt, if you we, may, well, yeah, okay, I was just so going to say, we, Andrew, well, I was yeah, just so, gonna, yeah, after yeah. you, Michael. All right. So, well, Matt, you brought up again the the Reformation, and and here's one of the things. You know, I I'm um, and you guys know that I tease. I, well, maybe I don't tease. Sometimes I'm serious about uh, the my thoughts on the reformers. Um, I I think in large measure, you know, the, these were people that had a heart and passion for the Lord, and they wanted to do what was right. Um, at the same time, they were living in a particular context, and out of that context develops a theology. But what I love about their approach to uh, the, to the whole idea of the need for the Reformation was that they were looking back, and they were comparing where they were with what they knew was a, a genuine expression of the church. And so I, I pulled... Uh, the first volume of Calvin's Institutes uh, off of my bookshelf. And you did what now? Yeah, I know. I have you that. own a copy of that. Ring, I, ring I, the I bell, yeah. sound the buzzer, sound the Holy alarm. Cow. And in his prefatory address to King Francis, in which he gives uh, his whole argument for why this is necessary, he is saying that, you know what? The church today isn't doing what the early church did. And so we are appealing back to the fathers uh, to get a, our bearings and our anchor uh, shored up so that we can move forward. And uh, because the, the the accusation against the reformers was, well, they're not connected to the ancient church. They're not doing what the fathers did. Uh, we are doing what the early church did and what the what the apostolic and the church fathers taught. And Calvin said, no. I mean, you're not reading the church fathers properly. In fact, he, he says this. He says, uh, were the fathers to rise from their graves and listen to the brawling art, which bears the name of speculative, speculative theology, there is nothing they would suppose it less to be than a discussion of a religious nature. That basically saying that you know these whole arguments are are uh, uh, I was going to say prof, but that doesn't mean anything in English uh, other than the short for the professor. But in Romanian, it means dust. This is just dust. This is I mean these arguments are fluff. 
Um, and, uh, and so we need to, I think, a part of the answer to that question after evangelicalism, what, is ourselves becoming conversant with the early church, understanding it at a new level uh, for us today. Not that we're trying to, to uh, recreate the early church. That's not the way forward. But the way forward, I believe, as we are thinking through the, this whole uh, issue of after evangelicalism, what is to, to interpret anew, afresh for this generation, for our time, what they intended the church to be and, uh, and, and to make that fresh. Now, I don't know what that is. Uh, and that's a part of what we're going to be exploring over the next uh, several weeks. So as we go back then, this really was what I was, thank you so much for the uh, softball lob, uh, Michael. When we start to endeavor in this, what are some of the guides that we will use to help us determine what from the, either the church fathers or, or from scripture or in the surrounding histories what are our guides to lead us to adaptive theology as opposed to captive theology? How are we looking back and making that determination so that we don't fall captive to our own time in the looking back? Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think there are two answers that come from the reformers themselves and then one that comes from uh, the early church. Uh, let me start with the early church one. Um, and then we'll, we'll unpack these uh, much more uh, deeply as we get into this whole conversation. But, but these kind of set up boundaries and guides, like you were saying, Andrew, I, at least I think uh, as I'm thinking about this. Um, so in the early church in the fourth century, there was a monk that lived in the monastery off the coast of France called Lorenz. His name was Vincent. And he wrote uh, what became known as the Comatorium. And in that was a, uh, in essence, a canon, a rule for understanding what orthodoxy is. And he basically said that we believe what has been believed by everybody for all time, everywhere. And that, and if, if opinions line up with that, what's been believed by everybody for all time, everywhere, then that's where orthodoxy can be found. And so we want to be looking for those things that have been believed by everybody for all time, everywhere. Um, we can discover those things through, the, uh, through the church history and, and through modern theology and, and so on. And so um, that, that's an exciting prospect. Um, the other two principles come from Reformation ideas. One is that in the essentials, there's unity. In the non-essentials, uh, that there's, there is uh, what? In the, well, no. In, in the Love. essentials, there's unity. In no, the secondary it's, things. It's what? It's charity. Is charity. 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 Liberty, or I'm sorry. Liberty. No, liberty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, we'll I knew this. there was we'll three. Yep. So in the essentials, there's there's uh, unity. In the non-essentials, there's liberty, and in all things, there is charity. There's love. Yeah. And we got uh, there eventually, everybody. Don't judge we got us. There eventually. We got it. 
Um, and so we we want to we we want to really major on the majors. Uh, that be united around those things that were uh, necessary, that were non, that were essential in uh, in in the church, and are essential in the church. And we'll talk about some of those things um, as we see them even develop in the early church. What was it that they saw that was so important that they would actually die for? I mean, these were these early church people; they were serious. And they would uh, die for their beliefs. Um, and so it wasn't a willy-nilly theology by any means, but something that they took very seriously. And then the third thing that I think helps us uh, with boundaries is an understanding that that the church reformed is always reforming. Um, it, you know, and this is getting to this idea, Andrew, of an adaptive ecclesiology. Um, we, I think, you know, as I look at church history, uh, uh, if I and as I look at Reformation history from you know the 1500s until today, to be really honest, there hasn't been a lot of change. It, you know, church structures are similar. Uh, we have pastors, we have elders. Uh, that some churches have deacons, some churches substitute elders and deacons. Uh, there are elder boards and so on. There's a liturgy that's pretty much typical uh, wherever we go with somebody uh, leading worship or, or uh, a choir uh, that's singing worship songs. Um, then there's somebody preaching. Our church buildings, although some of them are not as grandiose as what we see in the European context, are still monuments uh, in and of themselves to, to, you know, whatever. Um, but they're places where people will gather and they sit in pews and they listen to somebody up front speaking to them. The messages have changed, certainly. Uh, but for the most part, that, that ecclesiological or ecclesiastical structure has remained pretty consistent for 500 years. That, in my mind, communicates a, a, a captive ecclesiology. And so we need to rediscover what is it that God is doing right now, where we are, to create community. And, uh, and, and what does that look like? And how can we then, as a church, adapt to that uh, so that we are aligning ourselves with what it is that God is doing in society? Um, that that I think becomes very critical. I think too. I mean, if I were to then uh, go back to a, a couple other early church ideas, one of course is that we we follow Scripture. We want Scripture to be our guide as we're embarking on this journey, and then at the same time, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit and uh, and really have a deep sense of Him working in us but also understanding that he is at work in the world. And so beginning to identify where it is that he's at work and, and join with him on that work. I think these are good guides. I like these guides. I think they will help propel us forward, but I do, I, I wanted to stop at something you said earlier and just put this out. What is going to prevent us from doing what, evangelicals have long been accused of, which is using 
orthodoxy, the word orthodoxy, like a club. So that um, we say this is orthodox. We as Christians for a long time have agreed on this. This has been, you know, everybody for all of time and all places, they have said this is right. Uh, so that anybody who is saying, actually, I see this in scripture, somebody comes out and goes, no, orthodoxy, bah, what you have is heterodoxy. And so we're going to come and attack you with our, our books and our history. And we're going to tell you, you are on the outs when somebody's trying to ask those questions. How, how do we prevent ourselves from allowing our own opinions thoughts yeah opinions yeah. i i uh, you know i i'm just trying to say how do we prevent ourselves from going off the rails mm-hmm. and again getting into that captive space instead of being adapting our theology to today so that people here and now know christ but that we are rooted all the way back in that historical church uh, the the faithful witness from Christ moving forward. How do we keep head or I'm sorry, how do we keep orthodoxy from not being a club to beat anybody up who doesn't agree with us? Yeah. I mean, you ask a great question and I think those guidelines help us. You know, if we really are honest with ourselves, when we talk about what are the essentials, we're going to understand that, you know what, it, it doesn't fill the two volumes of Calvin's Institutes uh, or whatever, however many volumes he, he writes, um, that those aren't all essentials. Um, and, uh, and so when we look at the growth and development of the early church and look at how they began to articulate uh, what it was they believed and how they acted those things out, we'll see that the essentials are really few. It's the non-essentials that really more often than not throw us and are used as clubs to beat people over the head. Uh, I was recently in a conversation about uh, uh, infant baptism with someone, and I I shared this with you guys, and it quickly went sideways because uh, from this person's perspective, the reformers were absolutely correct uh, that that, uh, pedo-baptism is mandatory. In fact, it is it is not just mandatory, it is the practice of the church. When, when the reality is, historically, the church has never agreed in any consensual way that pedo-baptism is the practice of the church. There's always been a breadth and understanding of uh, the practice of baptism. If we can come to the point to uh, agree that these non-essentials, that we will be practicing liberty with each other, uh, th- then that's going to make uh, progress. And it's going to prevent those the, you know, accusations of uh, beating people over the head with what our orthodoxy is, when in fact it is just simply an opinion that uh, someone has had. And so it's making those distinctions between opinions and really what is what the church believed everywhere, uh, all the time, and every, by everyone. So, just uh, and I've expressed this before on the podcast, and just here's where I'm at. And I'm going to ask this question, and then I've got one other follow up. But um, I have, I mean, evangelicalism as a ism as a whole, 
in my opinion, I think is in fact, just to go back to the original question, I think is experiencing its death blow. Now, will some sort of remnants of it uh, be existing for quite some time? Absolutely. Uh, you know, hard have you know, old habits are hard to die. Um, I think some ways it's going to just shape and change over time. Um, but for me, like I have no interest. <laughs> I've yet to be convinced anymore that, um, at least at this stage, that evangelicalism is a project worth rescuing. Um, and so uh, this would be a fun conversation, I think, for us as we move forward. But I think in one of the questions that might be asked of us in this conversation, as we go down of what's next then, is are we here at Ephesiology trying to create a Ephesiologyism? Oh, I hope not. Dear Jesus, please no. That, that, uh, doesn't, that doesn't sound right on many levels. It's no, also it way too long. So you know, if, we're, we, if we are going to make a model and an ism, let's find a shorter one that's a, it's catchier. You know. Well, uh, and, and no, I think it's a, no. it was a rhetorical question because I already knew your answers. But uh, yeah, like that's the point here is that we're not trying to replace it with another ism, another system of belief, but rather be rooted back into um, the historic belief and also understanding it to, we really want to understand this wonderful God and uh, mm-hmm. who, who is all powerful, all creative and um, has rescued us and redeems and restores. And so for us, we desire to know that God and for him, the one who's been revealed to us through these scriptures and, um, you know, even Michael, just to go back to, you were even just saying adaptive ecclesiology, I almost would argue almost for an adaptive theology as well. And that's just, and, and I think we really do need to, those are some scary words. I think those two words combined, I think can really frighten people. And, but I think there's just no way around it. I mean, even just the theology of the old Testament matching with the new has been wrestled with for centuries. And so I think we, we really do need to understand that we can find unity across old Testament, new Testament. Jesus helps bridge that gap for us. Um, He helps us understand that, but you know, some people just point blank would go, man, he's just contradicting this thing and almost rewriting a whole new, a whole new thing. And this is why we call it the new Testament. Um, And so, but I think that as knowledge is revealed, there are things even in the first century that were not fully understood um, I was just having this conversation with um, my wife. I was in the hospital uh, recently uh, for an emergency uh, gallbladder removal surgery. And I was reflecting on the doctors and the nurses who were caring for me and uh, just my gratitude towards them. And then just reading also my scriptures along at the same time, just in some down periods and was thinking about the miracles of Jesus and just how he was even often called physician and um, the physicians of our day today are the hands and feet of Jesus, who are the miracle workers. And Jesus had different tools that he used. Sometimes it was just his hands. Other times it was just simply his prayers. And even one time he used mud and spit to heal the blind man. And our physicians today have far more sophisticated tools and um, they are performing miraculous healings, the healings that were not possible in the first century. And so um, I think that we have to learn to adapt and we, this is where conspiracy theories, this is where skepticism of the world comes in is when we get so closed-minded, narrow-minded in the, um, you know, in these orthodox practices that we pull directly from scripture, word for word verbatim, 
we go sideways and we find how incompatible we are with the world today. And it's actually because you're stuck living in first century AD language um, and words and knowledge, epistemology, and not living in the 21st century. And so because we don't allow ourselves to bridge those gaps of even just knowledge and allowing that to in, to, to influence us a little bit. Um, even the book of Job, I was just doing a study there and looking at just how um, God is just revealing himself to Job. Like, do you understand how, you know, where, where the, where the fish come from? Do you, were you there when the, when the, the deer are born? Do you understand how the oceans were, you know, uh, exist and, do you understand how the the, the stars are, are made? And the reality is we understand a lot of that. I'm reading through this and I go, there's very little here that we have let to, that we as a modern people have not uncovered answers to. So Job all of a sudden feels irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. They're, they're philosophical questions that are being asked, but we all of a sudden, it's like we've discovered a lot of the knowledge here. So we, if we have a very old thinking of how Job operates and its purpose of its book, then we're going to be stuck there rather than allowing it to be shaped and molded and adaptive. And so I just use that as an example and in a very short period of time here, just to share with us by going, we need to permit ourselves to ask the bigger questions and to be able to evaluate those things at a higher level in order for us to move forward. Again, what went wrong with the condominium that we'll know that we have already discovered. Are we asking ourselves the question, do we need to continue building these? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, is this what's best for the environment? Is this what's best for humanity? Is this what's best for our culture and our world for these kind of things? The same issues with climate change. Um, so often we've, we've ignored it, but now the question is we need to be asking bigger questions and we have to be willing to reconcile with those. So what, so does that mean both of you are ordering your ex-evangelical t-shirts? Are you going to uh, post any blogs coming up about why you're leaving evangelicalism? Is that kind of where we're going this season with this podcast? I think evangelicalism may have kicked me out. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Michael, are, are you ordering shirts? Or is that what's going on here? No, you know what? I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not ordering shirts, um, and I don't know that that's really my concern. Um, my deeper concern, I guess, is where we go from here, and how can that be constructive and impactful in our society, and uh, what shape should that shape take? Um, so I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily looking to. Uh, you know, be a, a, detra a detractor of evangelicalism, but I, I do want to be, um, and I want ephesiology to be a part of the conversation that moves us forward. Uh, where are we headed? And, uh, and that has to be done as we ask this question after evangelicalism, what? Right on. Well, let's leave it there. This could be an exciting season and exciting next number of episodes and excited to go on the journey with you guys uh, together. So yeah, uh, thanks for allowing this. Thanks for to the both of you for allowing this to be a safe space for us to be able to share. To you, our audience, uh, again, this is a safe place for you as well, too. And we just want to say thanks for doing theology and community with us here on the Ephesiology Podcast. 
We're glad that you are part of the growing Ephesiology global community. You can learn more about Ephesiology and get access to free missional resources for you, your church, and leadership teams at Ephesiology.com. So for Michael, Andrew, and myself, we'll talk again right here on the Ephesiology Podcast.